What if you had to survive in a futuristic East Asian world ruled by a social credit system by pretending you were genetically altered? Let's break from our ongoing series about present-day fantastical foes. Instead, we will jump into the sci-fi cyberpunk world of Enhanced, Candace Cade's newly released novel. Today, she rides into the studios to share her own social credit points. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm me, Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven. I award you points for listening today, and I'm also the co-author of a book called The Pop Culture Parent. So hello, everyone. This is Fantastical Truth. I'm Zachary Russell, and this is episode 154, What If You Had to Fake Being Genetically Modified? And we're talking about the brand new release, Enhanced, with author Candace Cade today. Which is the perfect setup for our top sponsor for this episode. It is Enclave Publishing, the publishers of said new novel from Candace Cade called Enhanced, just released on March the 14th in this highly anticipated YA sci-fi set in the Asian Federation. Lee Urban is living a lie in a society where everyone's DNA determines their destiny. Being a natural means automatic relegation to the gritty and dangerous outskirts. With the harnessed power of gene editing, the ability to create a superhuman race has transformed the world and offered the opportunity of a genetically enhanced life, but only to those who can afford it. Targeted by a hacker bent on exposing her true DNA, Lee Urban faces off with an artificial intelligence game that puts her and her lies to the test. What was supposed to be a dream come true turns into a lethal gamble of hide-and-seek with her genetics. Can Urban continue the act? Or will the cracks in her story expose her and endanger her family? Enhanced by Candace Cade has released from Enclave Publishing. You can get the audiobook from Oasis Audio as well. Learn more at enclavepublishing.com or get the link in our show notes for lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. By the way, Candace Cade is one of the uh, Enclave authors who are joining us at this year's Teach Them Diligently Homeschool Family Conference in Round Rock, Texas. This is actually happening the weekend after we release the show. So we're releasing uh, Tuesday, March the 21st, and then the conference is from Thursday through Saturday, the 23rd through the 25th. We're at the Kalahari Resorts Center for this homeschool conference. Uh, we're doing a uh, Enclave Lorehaven Fayette Press team-up booth, so E-L-F. Uh, J.B. Foley with Enclave is going to be there. Uh, Candice will be there. We will have copies of Enhanced. You can get them autographed. You can practice your Chinese. And then around the corner, uh, you can practice a speaking dragon and uh, rolling the dice for the Light Raiders game uh, with our uh, partner and friend, uh, James R. Hannibal. Great place to be at Teach Them Diligently in Round Rock, Texas. Get more links in the show notes for that. Well, what can we do but open the gates of our studios? I hear the revving of a futuristic electric motorcycle outside. Candace is going to roll on in here. Candace Cade is a recovering overachiever who spends her time dreaming up stories typically involving tech, psychology, culture, and or swords. She's a certified Krav Maga assistant instructor and loves writing action-packed martial arts scenes. A third culture kid, she considers Chengdu and Austin to be her homes. When she's not exploring new countries, she enjoys hiking in national parks, moving, teaching her husband Mandarin, and keeping a baby human alive. 
She can be bribed with boba tea, fluffy puppies, and breakfast tacos and invitations to the Lorehaven Studios, apparently. So, Candice, welcome in. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> After Zach's introduction, I thought I had to speak some Chinese. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and yes, I think I don't speak any Chinese, so you all can just have fun with that. Yeah, mine, mine is very rusty, so that's the uh, concession stand item for today. It's been uh, quite a few years since I've been in China, so it's, uh, it's not my strong suit anymore. And, uh, you know, I am a yellow belt in Kung Fu, so you better watch out, Candice, mm. <laughs> because uh, that's also a very old skill from... Man, my high school days. There we go. So, Candace, how, first we like to ask every guest in the studio this question. How did you discover biblical truth and fantastic imagination, whether or not it had anything to do with a large, epic talking lion? Yes. So my faith is a bit of an interesting journey. I grew up in a Christian home, and I remember at a very early age, my parents telling me about God and explaining to me that... Um, you know, we had been separated from God at a very early time because of our sin and how God had sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place and how he was raised from the dead. And because of that, we are able to have a relationship with God. And they explained it in very, very um, young terms so that four-year-old Candace could understand. And at the age of four years old, I actually chose to believe in Jesus, which in hindsight, I'm like, how much did I actually believe or understand theologically? um, What's interesting is that I used to be one of the worst kids ever. Um, My parents would have people come up to them all the time and just say, your one Candace is equal to my three children. (laughs) And my mom would never say it, but reading between the lines, I get the impression I was a total terror. Oh, no. But at the age of four, I remember crawling under the bed and choosing to believe in God and choosing to have a relationship with him. And again, I'm not sure how much I understood, but what's interesting is my mom noticed an immediate shift in me. I went from being this complete terror to, you know, not an angel child, but better, much more manageable. So that was at the age of four. Also at the age of four, something that really impacted me was my family's job took them to China. And so in China, I went to Chinese school part-time, and then I was homeschooled part-time. And as a believer, I was um, definitely a minority in my faith. Most people in China are atheists, they're um, Buddhist, a couple of agnostics. So for me, I was always a minority. And something that impacted my faith as well is we moved around a lot. We also jumped to and from the U.S. And in eighth grade, my family moved back to the U.S., to Oklahoma, and I attended public school there. And that was a huge shock for my system, going from being um, the minority in my faith to suddenly being in the Bible Belt and attending a public school and going to um, a Christian youth group. Um, And to be honest, it really rocked my faith because suddenly I was surrounded by all these people who were calling themselves believers, but I think for many of them, it was very much a cultural thing. It was, um, you know, that's a thing to do. You go to church on Sunday, and that's what we all do. And to me, seeing so many people who called themselves believers, and a lot of them, to be honest, looked the exact same as everyone else I was going to school with, I didn't really see a difference in some of them. And that really made me take a step back from my faith and question whether everything I had been Um, told and believing in was actually true. And I begin to wonder, you know, you see a lot of people who just, 
they kind of accept the religion that their parents have and they it just gets passed down generation to generation and i remember thinking am i just ignorant is that's what's happening um i also remember thinking the bible is very difficult to follow there's a lot of scriptures that i would rather not have to obey um if the bible is not true i do not want to waste my time trying to follow this um and so i really just took a step back and evaluated whether I believed in God at all, whether any religion was true. Um, I just took a step back from all of it. But as I began to just examine the world and nature and just see the beauty of life, I could not escape the reality that there has to be a God that's created this. When you look at the galaxies or a tiny blade of grass, or you think of how intricate DNA is and how life forms and how people are able to create art and the depth of human emotion. I I could not imagine that there was not some sort of higher intellectual being that had created us, some sort of God. So with that foundation, I then began to explore um, some of the different religions just to see, do any of these match with reality? Do any of these gods make sense? Are any of these gods real? And ultimately, the more I studied the God of the Bible, the more I realized This matches perfectly with what I see in reality, with what I see in the earth. And so I, in eighth grade, chose to believe God on my own. And um, since then, it has very much been a journey of um, studying the Bible in earnest and realizing, wow, there is so much encouragement and hope and beauty in the story that God tells of his redeeming the earth, despite how much pain there is and suffering there is. God is still present and working And so that really impacted me in eighth grade. And then we moved back to China for the rest of middle school, high school. And then the other really big thing that impacted my faith was two days, something happened two days after my graduation. So again, being homeschooled part-time and going to Chinese school part-time, my graduation was a little bit interesting. (laughs) It was um, a hodgepodge of a couple other homeschoolers and then all my Chinese friends. Everyone always likes to ask though, they say, well, who was the valedictorian? And, you know, it's just one other girl who, (laughs) quote unquote, graduated with me, um, who was also homeschooled. So we like to joke about that. But yeah, I had this fun graduation party with um, a couple homeschooled friends and then my Chinese friends. And then two days after I graduated, the 2008 earthquake that hit Sichuan oh, happened. Yeah. And Chengdu is about 50 miles from the epicenter of that. And that earthquake was one of the biggest ones in a long time. The death toll was around 90,000. And being 50 miles from the epicenter, it was, I mean, it it was just terrifying, to be honest. And I remember I was at basketball practice that day, and I was at the Chengdu Tiyushuyuan, which is um, sort of the sports college. They had a high school team, and I was there with my brother. He was practicing with the guys. I was practicing with the women. And I remember up until that point, everyone had always told us Chengdu doesn't have earthquakes. You know, it'd be like someone saying uh, an earthquake would hit Austin. You know, I'm not aware of any earthquakes that have ever hit Austin. Chengdu is the same. Sichuan had never really had any earthquakes. And everyone had always said, you know, we we don't have that sort of natural disaster because of the way the fault lines are. That that doesn't happen here. And so I remember the earth shaking. And my first thought was earthquake. But then immediately I discarded that because everyone had always said that's not a possibility. And so then I I looked, I was, you know, on the court, the basketball court, I remember looking to the hoop and it was moving back and forth. And I thought, did someone just dunk? Like, usually that's the only time it's moving like that, but there was no one around. 
And then I, I looked out the window and they were constructing this huge building right next to us. And the entire building was shaking and moving back and forth. And I remember I still did not think it was an earthquake. I still just thought, oh, something went wrong in the construction. Something bad's about to happen to that building. And then someone shouted, Dijun, which I had never heard that word before. Mm. But I very quickly realized meant earthquake. And everyone just ran out of this huge gymnasium. And we were outside. And it was just wild. It's hard to describe what it was like because we're in a city of 16 million. So it's like being in New York. And imagine everyone in the high rises suddenly runs out of the buildings because I mean, you don't want to be at the top of a high rise when there's an earthquake. And so everyone's just in the middle of the streets. All the traffic is stopped. No one has cell reception because everyone's trying to call each other. Um, me and my brother to get home, we typically took a 40 minute bus ride. Of course, we can't take the bus now. So we walked for you know two or three hours to get home. Oh, wow. And we're just walking through what feels like the apocalypse. Like everyone's just wandering the streets, millions of people, all the traffic is at a standstill. And it was just complete mayhem. And what's really wild is my parents' work was they used to partner with Heart to Heart International, which is a um, nonprofit organization that prepares and helps people when it comes to disasters. So my dad's a doctor. They've done a lot of disaster relief care going into um, Sri Lanka after the really terrible tsunami and helping um, provide medical supplies and treating people and really taking care of people. And so they'd had a lot of training for situations like this, but we had never imagined that in our own home is when we would need to use those skills. And so the reason this impacted my faith is because at the time we had a community center where we were teaching people English and we basically converted that into um, a, a command center to send out teams of supplies and um, medical uh, things that people needed and water and food. And it just became this huge hub of sending out teams to help people. And we were some of the very first people to mobilize and be able to act. And it was just a huge exercise on faith and on prayer, because there would just be times where um, kind of like, you know, in Austin, we had the snowpocalypse and we had mm -hmm. shortages and you went to the store and there was no water left. Um, we had very similar situations in Chengdu where, you know, there was a run on water and suddenly there's no water and which is a scary situation when you're in the middle of a city and there's no way out and there's no swimming pools or natural lakes, really. Um, and then, you know, for us trying to think about how are we going to send out teams if we don't have water? And so my mom and my dad were really the ones heading this up, but um, my mom pulled me into caring for these teams and so I, I had a front row seat to how they handled this. And I just remember every day my parents coming home and we would just pray as a family and we would say, okay, tomorrow we're sending out a team and what, what the people really need is water and we don't have it, you know? And so we're just going to pray for water. And then the next day someone would just show up and they would say, Hey, I heard that you're sending relief um, to the people who've been hit hardest by the earthquake. We have all this water. We just want to give it to you. And I just saw prayer after answered prayer happen. And, you know, there was even one group of people who were believers and they had felt God telling them to fly to Chengdu and take a bunch of supplies. And this was before the earthquake. And, wow. and so they just flew to Chengdu. And while they were in the air, the earthquake happened. And when they landed, it was already chaos. 
And so they were somehow able to find us and bring all of the supplies. And I mean, that's just wild. Things like that are not a coincidence. Can you imagine just getting on an airplane randomly to, I don't know, Kansas City and bringing a very specific set of supplies like food, medical stuff, water? I mean, I just saw time after time where we had these huge needs and God would just come through. And so I think that really impacted my faith too of just, I had seen so many wild answers to prayer that I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is real. So that that really impacted my faith. Um, I think since then, there have been a lot of things that have impacted my faith, but it's just been a constant journey of God just showing me my need for him um, and just growing me in various ways. Well, that'll turn someone not only into a, a believer in Jesus, if they're paying attention to God's providential acts uh, for people, uh, but also it's it's wonderful to see then God moving in these fantastical ways. Like I, I don't know, you know, Christians can debate whether or not this counts as a miracle, but at the very least, you see God's providence in action. He is sustaining things. Uh, he is sending people ahead of time uh, to help out with the disaster. Uh, that is just marvelous to see. Candace, I think it's also helpful to get that balance uh, to see how God moves in a nation like China and how there are faithful people there taking care of one another and, and even many Christians as well. Uh, just a few episodes ago on the podcast, uh, we had our, our episode 150, uh, is the U.S. government covering up spy balloons or alien spaceships? So you hear China a lot in the news associated with some negative things, uh, but it is certainly helpful to remember that God is active there as well. There may be some things going on there. Uh, but God is still active and he is still growing, uh, growing his people uh, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I also appreciate your reference to making your faith your own after initial conversion uh, at, at age four. You know, Christians can debate too, like, well, wh which was the real one? You know, when did it actually take? You know, because we'd like to pin it down to a specific uh, time and place. And yet for you, it sounds like it was a little different. Uh, it sounds like um, you had to do it kind of again what what did you say in eighth grade just having to go through and make that your own uh, and some people are calling that deconstruction i think it's just normal processing of the bible's claims toward truth about what jesus said about himself uh, and then making absolutely sure that you personally believe this and are not just going along with it for the well social credit so <laughs> very good stuff there let's go to our first question then you mentioned of uh, growing up in china uh, and seeing the Lord at work there and your family and the relief effort after the earthquake and all. But specifically, how did China change your life and creativity? We've already talked to your life, but how about your creativity? Like, uh, how did that interface then with any any love for fantastical imagination, sci-fi, cyberpunk, uh, anything that you read and or write? Yeah, it's very interesting because in terms of creativity, I had a very interesting upbringing, right? Like getting to go to Chinese school part-time, being homeschooled part-time, and then occasionally going back to the U.S. and going to American public school part-time. And so I felt like I was able to see the differences in creativities across educational experiences and cultures. And one thing I very quickly noticed is that in China, creativity is more of a luxury. And you know, a lot of my friends starting in middle school were just heads down studying all the time because at the end of middle school is a test that dictates whether you get to go to a good high school that's going to prepare you for college, whether you're going to go to a trade high school or whether you're going to drop out. And so my friends were staying up until 2 or 3 a.m. 
in middle school, staying up and studying and then getting up at five the next day to work on homework. And so when you're in that sort of environment, that's so cutthroat and you have to get good grades because your livelihood depends on it. You don't have time to play sports. You don't have time to play instruments. Creativity is it's just not an option for you. And so I saw that a lot of middle school, same thing in high school, at the end of high school, if you've gone to a good high school and you're trying to get into college, you know, at the end of high school is what's called the Gaokao placement exam. And that's going to, you know, if you have a good grade, it's going to determine that you get to go to college. And it's extremely competitive because there's not enough universities for everyone. And so, yeah, I just saw um, in Chinese public school, it's very much about the grades. And that makes sense given the system. Whereas in American public school, creativity is more emphasized. There's a lot more importance put on the athletics, on music. But then I would say even comparing that to being homeschooled, I feel like being homeschooled offered me the greatest creativity. Um, My mom is an education major. She values creativity a lot. So I think homeschooling even of itself can vary vastly depending upon your parents, depending on the experience you had. But for me, my parents put a lot of emphasis on creativity and allowing us to explore our passions and on reading and writing. But even that looked very interesting growing up in China because English was always the first language spoken in our home. And reading and writing Chinese was extremely difficult for me. I definitely did not want to read anything in Chinese just because it required so much effort that it was no longer enjoyable. So most of the stuff I read was in English and we had to import it over from America because this is pre-Kindle days. This is pre-Amazon Prime days. We couldn't just go to a bookstore that had American books. So every time we visited the U.S., we would stock up on as many books as we could, (laughs) you know, weighing our suitcases, weighing them again, trying to get them exactly to 50 pounds, but not over, you know, (laughs) with all the books that we wanted for the next, you know, who knows how many years, as well as VHS tapes. This is back in the day, right? So we did have Chinese TV that we would watch as well, but sometimes my parents wanted some good old American movies. So we watched basically whatever my grandpa would film. Um, So we had Star Trek reruns, Hogan Heroes reruns, (laughs) Cowboys Super Bowl playoffs, like just whatever my grandpa found interesting, essentially. But yeah, there was a lot of different creativity um, or a lot of different fantastical things that we watched. Um, I mean, I loved Star Trek. I loved some of the books that we brought over. And so I think the combination of being homeschooled and then in my family, they did always value reading and writing and these different avenues for exploring new worlds. And so much so that the other few foreigners who lived in town would always come to our house, to our library, quote unquote, um, because we had so many books that slowly over the years we had accumulated. And so I love that about our house. It was always full of books and we were always encouraged to read and to write and to explore and be creative. And so I think, yeah, growing up in a country where I realized creativity is a luxury, I think made me value it more. Um, Growing up in a homeschool environment where my parents valued it. And then I think also just being extremely fortunate in that I was able to travel a lot at a very early age. A lot of times when you live abroad, you frequently need to travel for visa runs. And so, you know, I got to travel all over, not just to China, but to Thailand, Australia, Japan, all over the world. And I think that also increased my creativity and made me 
just want to learn more about different people and cultures. And I was always fascinated when we would go to a new culture and I would hear a new language and I would see a different type of clothing and different holidays that were celebrated and different foods that were made. And I just loved learning about those different cultures. And I think that that's something that's even translated into my writing is a lot of people have said, enhance the world building is very unique. Where did that come from? And I think it came from just at a very early age, being able to travel so widely and just understand a little bit more about different cultures. So I think growing up in China definitely um, definitely had an impact on my creativity and helped me value it as well. Mm. Yeah, my time in China was was much shorter than yours, and I was already an adult when I lived there, but it was in about 20 years ago. But there are there are so many ways that that has made an impact on me. First of all, just being in a foreign country where you're the minority and everyone notices you like I, I couldn't hide, like I stood out everywhere I went. And that's just an interesting experience, you know, and it reminded me of so many stories where it's like the character is like a stranger in a strange land, right? And so already that experience kind of helped inform the way that I think about characters and stories. But, you know, you, you mentioned it um, kind of at the beginning about making your faith your own. And that was certainly an experience I had. But, but more than that was when I would see Chinese people take on the Christian faith. For them, it was very much a big step to consider the claims of Christ, to, to believe in that for themselves. And it was very much a process of counting the cost. There was one person that told me very frankly, well, you know, we're members of the Communist Party in my family. And like, religion is not allowed. So I can't take that step. And other people would, would kind of add up in their minds, well, this, this could cost me this opportunity or that relationship, but I believe it's true and I, I have to follow this. And so that was really eye-opening for me because I also grew up in the Bible Belt where it's just taken for granted that you go to church and you believe in God and you read the Bible. But for them, it was just very huge to consider that. And even just to see people read the Bible for the first time and just how special that was, was really fascinating for me. And, and again, it just made me appreciate it so much more because I can get the Bible anywhere in any translation. And, and uh, it's not, not always uh, the case for a lot of people there. The other thing I wanted to say was I discovered Left Behind when I lived in China. So you know, I, I couldn't get it at the bookstore there. There was an ebook reader I had on a little PDA, like a Sony device. This is like pre iPhone, pre smartphone. There was like an ebook store online where I was able to get the Left Behind books and then the Christ Clone trilogy. And so, you know, my first experience with with really Christian fiction was sitting on a bus in China on my little e reader, reading those. And so, it's always just a special memory to think back to that. What China really did for me was open up what Paul talks about in Acts. 17, where he says, from one man, he's made every nation and he's determined the exact times and places where people should live so that people would reach out for him and find him. And he's not far from each one of us. And later on, it says, um, he's not left himself without witness. And there were so many neat connections that I discovered between the Chinese language and the book of Genesis or even other biblical concepts, because the Chinese character system, it's like little pictures and it's almost like little stories. And every now and then I would discover a Chinese character that had some kind of story or representation of a biblical truth. And I don't know how it got there. Maybe I'm reading into it, but it's certainly made for a great metaphor and certainly made for 
a great way of understanding things. Uh, and my, you know, my favorite character, for example, is the word for righteousness. Uh, it's more the traditional character, but it's the, it, like if you break it down, there's two parts to it. And the top part of the character is the character for lamb. And the bottom part is the character for me. So a lamb covers me. And that is what creates righteousness. And I just thought, how in the world did that become that character? You know, and there's a lot of theories about it. We, we could talk about some other time, but I've always thought about that, that that is a perfect representation of the Christian faith and in, in what Jesus came to do is to be the lamb that covers us and provides righteousness. And so, you know, God is a, is a, is a fantastical God, you know, and, and he cares about all people from all cultures and he's designed certain things to, to point them to himself. So for me, that was the, the biggest lesson is, is just seeing how God really is a God of all peoples. All peoples and all stories, whether it's uh, science fiction or fantasy, which leads me to our second sponsor for this episode, a fantasy novel Once Upon a Ren Fair by author A.C. Castillo. Keltia has a normal 17-year-old life, except that she was found on the steps of a police station when she was a baby, and she was born with green hair, and no one knows why. Candace might say something about genetics there. Back to the description. A fun day takes a fateful twist after a group of Ren Fair barbarians who actually seem dangerous start chasing her across the grounds. When she follows a handsome jouster, Emerson, into a hollow tree to hide, she finds herself in a fantasy land of giants, killer unicorns, powerful fairies, and dryads. Can Emerson help her find the key to return home, or will Keltia be swallowed up by this impossible land? You can get Once Upon a Ren Fair in paperback at Amazon or get that link in our library. All those links are in our show notes at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors, or you can get that basic link in our show notes for this episode. Candice, your novel deals with uh, genetic editing and all kinds of cool futuristic cyberpunk stuff, but in a different way. We'll talk about social credit systems in the next uh, chapter. But let's go to our second chapter here. Will people benefit or suffer from genetic editing? Like, how does that work? And enhanced without giving away spoilers, but how much more research did that take uh, to blend in this additional uh, sci-fi element into the story? So enhanced is based loosely off of CRISPR gene editing technology, which does exist today. And I feel like I should just explain what that is briefly, because a lot of times when I talk to people, they've never heard of CRISPR before. And so it's technology, just like a phone, you know, a car, we have technology that can be used for good or evil. A lot of times it just depends on how it's used, right? But CRISPR in particular is a gene editing technique that allows you to go into a gene and actually take out a piece of DNA and replace it with new DNA. So that is a little bit different from most technology in that we're actually changing people's genetics and we're actually changing the way people are structured. But today what that looks like is CRISPR is very much in its infancy. They've only been able to treat around a dozen people globally who have sickle cell anemia, who have cancer, who have these different genetic disorders that are quite serious. And they've been able to, using CRISPR gene editing techniques, treat them. And actually, so far, they seem to be doing really well. But again, it's only been a couple years. Scientists are monitoring them very closely. The big concern is that there might be genetic mutations that happen that we're not aware of that could cause more damage down the road. 
So that's primarily how it's being used today. Um, again, it's so new that we've only just now had um, the third international summit on human genome editing. And so there's a lot of debate going on, though, today around what is ethical, how is this going to expand, what is this used for? And there have even been, there has been a rogue case of a scientist using it not on adults by consent, but in vitro. Um, there was a case of a couple who were HIV positive and they wanted children. And this scientist took 11 embryos and using CRISPR actually changed their DNA so that they would not be HIV positive. And one of those embryos took, and now we have healthy twins. This is alleged. Um, this was a rogue scientist, and so it's very hard to confirm. Um, but it does seem likely that this has been taken even to the next level, which is in vitro editing. And I think that that's where we start to see a slippery slope, because on the one hand, people can say, but it's it's for good. You know, we're able to go in and people who have um, who are going to be born with different genetic disorders, we can eradicate that. On the other hand, what's to stop people from making designer babies and to say, well, I have blue eyes, but I really want a child with brown eyes, or I want my child to be stronger or taller. You know, back in 2000, we had the Human Genome Project where they were basically able to lay out the human um, genome and identify which genes um, are linked to different traits. And that really laid the groundwork for CRISPR. So now with CRISPR, we know what to target, what genes to target if we wanted to change things. And so Enhanced is based loosely off of that concept several hundred years in the future. For instance, if we wanted to actually enhance someone's intelligence, you know, we're not there yet today because that's going to require editing hundreds, if not thousands of genes. And so that would be extremely challenging. And so Enhance is taking something that does exist today, that there is a debate raging, and I think a lot of people aren't even aware, and extrapolating that 100 years into the future and saying, if that debate doesn't happen, if people assume it's fine, and if people want to then create designer babies and have their children have you know, the, most, the best intelligent brains and um, the strongest bodies, what would that look like? And some of the stuff in Enhanced is, you know, I took a uh, creative license. I think the ability to breathe underwater or have wings would probably be extremely challenging. Um, but in Enhanced Intelligence or the ability to read microfacial expressions, such as Inceptors, a lot of those things I think would be possible down the road. Mm. Yeah, I've been following the news about CRISPR for a long time just because I'm a nerd like that. I think I first heard about it on Radiolab on uh, NPR. And it's a really fascinating technology because it's actually based around a natural defense system that bacteria have against viruses. So it's very interesting how scientists have looked at how, you know, God has designed our bodies to defend themselves and then adapted that uh, using a very specific, you know, targeted technique to essentially alter your DNA, um, but in the same way that the body will do that. And uh, there were several years ago, I think the first trial they were trying to do was Huntington's disease. And I had to look this up just now to refresh my memory. But Huntington's disease is like a neurological disorder and there's no cure, but it's a single gene that causes it. So it presented like an easy target. And um, I don't think it's gone so well. I think it's still in trials from what I've uh, kind of scanned here. 
So there's a long ways to go. And I, but I like that in your story, you're, you're taking this far into the future. Like, okay, well, what if we move beyond just the obvious or the easy diseases and what, you know, but beyond just like human health, we, we went into like human augmentation, you know, improvement. And, you know, this is like the debate we've had about all kinds of things like plastic surgery. Like, well, when is plastic surgery good? Well, you know, if your nose gets crushed, or if your body is deformed by disease or injury, uh, well, in that case, it kind of makes sense because you're just restoring your body to how it was originally or what it should be. But then obviously people take plastic surgery way beyond that. And so I, I think it's gonna, we're going to have the same debate with gene editing. It's like, when does it become just about health versus when does it become about improvement or enhancement? And then how does that divide society? Because I think that's the sci-fi question, right? Like, how is that going to create almost two different classes in society of people that are not just disease-free, but maybe immune to disease? And, and then they are going to rise to the top. And, you know, th- this is very much the plot of Gattaca, which is a favorite movie of my sister's and mine, which is about a world where everyone is, like, genetically designed from birth to have all these different features and um, enhancements. And then there's someone that was born without any enhancement and he struggles very much in this society to, to get by. So I'm, I imagine that in your story, um, this is part of the tension is that there's people with and without this sort of therapy and this improvement. And so they, they have to navigate this world. So how does this world treat people that are, you know, quote natural versus people who are enhanced? It's it's very unfair, kind of like you just described. Yeah. I mean, I look at today, I, again, I'm extrapolating off of trends I see today. So I look at something, the closest thing we have to that, which is IVF, I would say. I mean, it's a very expensive treatment. You can actually select the gender of your child when you have these multiple embryos that you're working with. I was even listening to a podcast where a single woman wanted to have a child. And so she went to a sperm bank and she based on, you know, height or education or eye color, then was selecting the donor. And so, you know, I I look at instances like that where people are already sort of selecting what they want their children's genetics to look like. And that's extremely expensive, right? IVF is not something that, you know, someone with um, working at McDonald's is going to be doing right, and and CRISPR is extraordinarily expensive. And I think if we got to a point where mainstream society is using CRISPR, I still think it's only going to be available to those who have the money for it, right? And so that's what I show in Enhanced is the wealthy in society are able to design their children, give them the best genetic enhancements. They never get sick. They don't have asthma. Versus. Lee Urban, the main character who was born naturally and is adopted into this high society, you know, she does have asthma and she has to hide it. She does get sick and she has to take a flu patch every fall. And so she has all these disadvantages that work against her. And society is basically divided in two, like those who have the best jobs, the best opportunities because they have the best genetics. And then everyone else who can't compete and they live in the outskirts and they're stuck working um, the equivalent of a minimum wage job, which in the future I put is training the AI algorithms. <laughs> and so that's very much the way that I think society could go is those who have and those who have not. And we just see a widening gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, without a belief in God, without this, uh, the leftovers from Judeo-Christian morality, 
I don't see how a country or a culture couldn't go in that direction. Uh, the ruling religion now, certainly in the West, and I, I don't know how much it is in the East, which is uh, the primary setting for enhanced, but certainly in the West, the main religious value that is shaping everybody now is individual autonomy. Uh, you have the right to describe yourself. Uh, you have the right to declare who you are to the world, regardless of what uh, your biology is or who you were born to be originally. And everyone else needs to fall in line with who you are or else they are trying to, in some sense, erase you, destroy you. Uh, there's this idea uh, that unless people acknowledge who you feel like that day, uh, then, then you're destroyed. And you can see then where some kind of medical experimentation could go from the level that we see now to, to this molecular level. I'm not saying that's a parallel. I just see that it is absolutely realistic that this could happen and, and for good or ill, uh, like uh, you all were saying, I mean, there could be legitimate cures for disease in this. Uh, but then, you know, in some more radical science fiction, you give someone bat wings and the ability <laughs> to fly, or maybe they can't fly. And that's the, that's the plot tension there. I think by the way that yes, that would be, uh, definitely going into the realm of fantasy there because, you would have to re-engineer the humans so drastically that I don't think anything, even the future version of CRISPR, uh, could design that level of intricate uh, muscular uh, growth and all of those you know, wholly different parts going on. And just you'd have to re-engineer the, the human being. You definitely get into fantasy there and probably some body horror. So it's more realistic than to think that if you're going to do genetic enhancements, then you are giving a person something that like super intelligence that someone else already has, you know, where they can beat a computer at chess or something like that. So I guess the answer then, will people benefit or suffer from genetic editing? I, it seems to be the answer is yes. It really depends on the person who's using it. And so long as you've got some scientists who are more concerned about whether or not they could, uh, don't stop to think about whether or not they should, uh, you're going to see both going forward. But certainly I think more of the, uh, more of the suffering, uh, because as Tony Stark memorably described it, they ignore the man was not meant to meddle medley. Uh, that's a Judeo-Christian idea that science and experimentation should have some kind of limiting principle. But if the limiting principle is a radical individual autonomy, then it's all the doors open. Uh, creativity now has no limits. There's no discipline whatsoever. Uh, and unfortunately, then we, we get some disasters, uh, present as well as future, I'm sure. I actually met Candace for the first time at the Realm Makers 2022 conference in Atlantic City, but this year's conference goes back to home base in St. Louis, Missouri, and they are our third sponsor for this episode, Realm Makers. This is the Christian-led organization for hundreds of writers who create fantasy, sci-fi, and other stories. This year's 11th annual conference is in July, the 13th through the 15th in St. Louis, Missouri at the Sheraton Westport Chalet Hotel or live streaming on the dedicated Realmsphere social network. Authors can register at realmmakers.com for the event, says co-owner and CEO Rebecca P. Miner. We at Realmmakers have enjoyed the privilege for over a decade of connecting Christian creators to one another and to opportunities in the publishing marketplace. We're not just about bringing expert faculty to the conference for teaching, although that's one of the pillars of what we do. We've also discovered that a writer's success is tied into relationships one way or another. The annual conference offers a supportive environment where authors can take the next step in their creative journey. Get more information in the link at our show notes for episode 154 
or you can get the direct link at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors for the Realm Makers 2023 conference. Lorehaven will be there, of course, with a booth, uh, just like we're having at the homeschool conference in uh, Austin uh, this weekend. If you're listening to this episode on release date, Candice, you've got genetic tampering and social classes and uh, all of that uh, post-dystopian cyberpunk uh, bad stuff. No, good stuff when it's in fiction anyway. But you've also blended this with a uh, another uh, interesting development in the field of culture meets science, and that is social credit systems. Should we fear cyberpunk social credit systems? Answer yes, I think. But uh, let's explain. Uh, let's explore exactly what is a social credit system how does it appear in Enhanced, and uh, how is this based in some ideas that people just won't shut up about in reality? So let me back up a little bit and explain where this idea came from. I wrote Enhanced when I was living in Beijing. You know, I'd grown up in China and then returned to the U.S. for college and working. And then while I was working, I was sent on a relocation assignment back to China, to Beijing, and that's when I wrote Enhanced. And that was right around the time when a lot of people were talking about China having a social credit score system. There was a lot of fear around that. Um, but, you know, I didn't experience it at all when I was there. I haven't heard of anyone experiencing that yet. I, I think it's still being developed. And it looks like it's more for individuals engaging their trustworthiness. But at the time, there was a lot of fear around this concept. And so I kind of ran with that concept and I com combined it with several different things. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with clout, but that's something that used to be around and you could plug in all your social media accounts like Instagram, Facebook, plug them all in and it would give you a clout score based on how many followers you had, based on engagement levels. And I remember there were um, a couple of news articles of different companies using clout scores, not exactly in the most ethical of ways. Um, I remember there was one example of different customer care teams who, when they were dealing with customers, would search their clout score. And then if they were someone who is very influential and, you know, if they started talking bad about the company, it could result in a lot of bad PR. They would prioritize those customers and they would give them better care versus someone who had a lower clout score. And so I remember thinking, listening to those articles, reading those articles and just thinking, wow, that's, that's slightly terrifying. What would that look like if you were to combine your social media presence and your clout score there with things that we already have today, like a financial credit rating or your driving record, or even, you know, Allstate has the DriveWise program where you get incentivized to drive well, um, you know, your insurance rate goes down versus if you're driving poorly, um, it cannot be so great for you. So I was looking at a variety of systems that we already have today that sort of either measure how influential you are based on your social media presence or taking different records um, that do exist today and just sort of combining all of them. The difference I would also say is that in enhanced, everyone, unless you have it set to private mode, which is pretty rare, everyone, the second you meet them using augmented reality and facial recognition, they instantly see your score, your social mm. score or your social. So I think that's something that's also very different from reality today is, you know, we have social media influencers and they do get um, good treatment and free swag and different opportunities. But what is different about that is most of them aren't recognizable in real life. You know, most people still would not instantly meet them and be like, wow, you're a influencer. You know, most people, when I meet them, they don't know I'm an author. You know, our online presence is very separate 
from our real life identities. And so in Enhance, those are all sort of combined. You have your social credit system that is instantly um, available to the public and people are going to treat you either poorly or sort of, um, you know, suck up to you if it has a high score. And so those are very closely tied. So that's sort of what I modeled it after was um, the sort of idea of social credit um, from social media, but then also combining things like your driving record and mm-hmm. your financial credit rating. Yeah. This is another thing I've, I've also geeked out a lot about in China. Oh, you he's know, a big yeah. fan of social credit systems, folks. He <laughs> wants to cancel you based on your plus or minuses. Oh, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> yeah. The social credit system there and combined with facial recognition, it's one of those things where it's like, be careful what you wish for. So how often have you been driving in traffic and you see someone just jaywalking and you have to slam your brakes? And you're like, oh, that guy. Oh, that's so dangerous. That's awful. I see this all the time where I live. Or how about this? Someone running a red light. Or as I saw the other day, someone treating a red light like a yield sign, like just slowing down and then speeding through it, not even stopping and then going, uh, which would be bad enough. So, you know, how often have you, you are a listener, you know, you guys, how often have you seen something like that? And you're like, oh, I wish that guy would get caught. I wish they'd get a ticket or, or something would happen to him. Well, this is exactly what's happening in China. If you jaywalk, there are cameras everywhere and you will instantly get noticed and recognized and then punished through your social credit score and all kinds of things, littering, petty crimes, everything up to, you know, late on payments. So everything that you do right or wrong is getting tracked. And there's a very different value in the East versus the West, which is order and trust. Uh, In the West, as you said, Stephen, our our value is autonomy, independence, freedom, self-expression, And so, you know, I I don't know how easily something like this could be implemented here in the West because uh, we value decentralized technology and and relationships and media and information, whereas in the East, everything is very centralized and very much built around authority. Here, everyone is suspicious of authority. Like, what's the famous quote by Thomas Jefferson? Like, question everything and everyone, including God himself. And then... We're also seeing the rise of, you know, web 3.0, blockchain, things that make, you know, centralized anything like centralized finance irrelevant in some ways. But the danger of the West is we're leading to this atomized existence where it's so individualized that we are totally cut off from everyone else. I just heard a very alarming report the other day that I, I can't quote numbers, but the number of single men in their 30s has doubled. In, in just the last five or 10 years. Wow. Yeah. And the, the age at which people are getting married and having children is much, much later. It's, it's very alarming to researchers that study this. It, it's, it's going to be a depopulation bomb at some point. Like, and we're already seeing that in Japan where there are more people dying than being born and they are actually paying people to have children. It's happening in Russia. You know, but we are seeing little glimmers of this thing here, like Ford, the motor company just released a, a patent or maybe a technology where they can shut off your car if you're late on payments and your oh, car Ford. Can... We're in brave we're in brave new world where you're worshiping <laughs> Ford and treating Ford like Jesus Christ. Oh Ford. Yeah. So you know I think we're gonna For see Ford's sake. We're gonna see glimmers of this and like your car repossess itself and just drive off without you. But uh 
but you know, because there's competition, it just takes another company to say, well, we're not going to do that to you. You know, there's a free market here. But as you said, Candace, we already have the credit scores. We've already got the driving record. We do have somewhat of a permanent record that we always feared. You know, we'd have like when we were in high school. So I think we're going to have some combination of this. But also, I think that because of the atomization, because of the isolation of people, it it's very tempting to embrace these sort of swarm and cloud communities that can conform you to these other things and you you voluntarily give yourselves up to these kind of movements. So I, I don't know what's going to happen here in 10, 20 years, but it I, I think it's going to be something beyond what we can imagine, which is what's so great about sci-fi. We, we get to kind of play around with these reality simulations. We get to see what could this look like? And uh, I, I think you setting in, this in the East is a very that's very smart because then you're, you're, you know, we're already seeing this happen there. So it's like, okay, what's the next step and the step after that and the step after that. So tell me uh, some more about what your character has to battle then and, and how does she get her sense of, well, don't give away the ending, but you know, what are the, the forces coming against her and that, that she's trying to fight through to, to find her place, to find kind of her meaning in, in society? Well, it's very challenging, right? You think about most people who are college bound, they already are dealing with a lot, right? They're trying to keep their grades up. They're leaving home for the first time. And for Urban, she's experiencing all those things. But on top of that, she has this social score she has to balance. And for her, being in the metropolis, you need to have a high social status um, just to get a job, just to fit in. And for her in particular, because she's a natural, and she's trying to hide in plain sight, she really needs a high social score or people are going to be suspicious. And, you know, very early on in the book, um, this is not a spoiler, it's very early on, her parents tell her and they challenge her, you know, you need to have an extremely high social score or we're not going to give you the freedom and the flexibility to choose the path that you want going forward. We're going to choose your career for you and we're going to choose one that we think is safe for a natural to hide in. But she doesn't want that path. She wants to be an artist. And so in order to get that, she has to have a high social score. And in order to do that, she has to play the social game. And that's essentially linking with people, going to exclusive events with key opinion leaders and linking with them. And so on top of balancing all these different things, on top of hiding her genetics or lack of enhancements, she's also having to spend a lot of time jumping over hoops, trying to get a high social score and trying to impress people. And I think about even today, you know, we have people who are bloggers and people who are Instagram influencers and the amount of time that they have spent building their social media presence, their followers, YouTubers. It's very much like that, but it's also in real time. It's who do you know? Who can you introduce me to? What exclusive access do you have to certain events? And she has to spend a lot of time worrying about all of those things. In episode 137 of this uh, podcast, we explored the differences between two famous dystopians. It was uh, Huxley's Brave New World and uh, Orwell's 1984. I think a lot of folks are concerned that Big Brother is going to come along and be watching you from your TV screens and going to forbid you from writing certain things in your diary, which may be an issue in some countries or some you know potential future timelines that God is in control of. But I do see, I think, uh, uh, equal uh, problems with, um, as you were mentioning earlier, yeah, is are we going to get a social credit system here in, uh, in, the, the, in the West, in, in the United States or in a, a Western culture? 
I don't know if it'll take that form. Right now, we see people taking a stab at it here or there. Uh, maybe there's an app on your phone uh, that uh, may be a problem with that. But I think more, more of the issues that we see now is people trying to crowdsource the social credit scores. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just have this informally. You know, let, we're, we're not having an official government effort to cancel you, but maybe there's a government agency uh, that's funding so-and-so, which is working with an NGO over there and a university committee over there. Uh, and they're going to tag you for spreading misinformation on social media. And that can get political real quickly. I think the main issue there is the problem uh, that I see, uh, I think, very wisely combined and enhanced with the genetic editing. The problem there is that either way, you're trying to use technology to control human nature, whether it's genetic splicing or a social credit system. These things are not just the purview of God. Uh, but also your reputation, your good name, very biblical concepts I'll get to in a moment. Like These are things that people are supposed to address with wisdom on the ground. You don't outsource these questions to a computer. You cannot reduce all those things to a number. Maybe you were jaywalking. Uh, maybe you were trying to get to the hospital uh, just in time, and, and that was the only choice you had. There are reasons, exceptions for laws that don't overturn the laws. Uh, but the social credit score may say, well, technically you broke into that house and that's against the law. Like, yes, uh, film footage showed that the house was on fire and I was trying to save the crying infant and the litter of puppies on the second floor. Uh, there's things that we handle then in the legal system and certainly with uh, on the ground realities. You know, talk to the firefighters who were there to see it. Uh, don't just look up the number on a computer. Uh, it's just unwise in the extreme uh, to take these issues of anthropology, the study of human beings. Uh, and outsource them to a computer. I would, though, not want to overcorrect about that and say that reputation doesn't matter. It does. Uh, Proverbs 22.1 reminds us that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Going back to Bible times, though, people were figuring out what your reputation was based on what you do in front of them, a personal circle of friends and acquaintances and a hierarchy with the king and people who knew one another. Uh, that's how it ought to be, I think, even now. And then the Apostle James remarks in uh, James chapter 2, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who bear, wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I'm going to be promptly against uh, the social credit system idea for the very reason that James clarifies. That is a false kind of judgment from a distance. You don't know the person. You don't know why they have a bad credit score based on their appearance. The scripture very clearly condemns that kind of partiality. Although it really makes for great fiction. You know, what would happen if this did happen? How would you respond? How would, how would you get your score up? You know, is there any way that makes me wonder, Candace, because this is the first book in a series? Like, are, are we going to have us a revolution? Like, what, what's, uh, what's going to happen then uh, in the continuing books of this series? Oh, what's the series name, by the way? The Hybrid Series. Hybrid Series. How many books in said Hybrid Series? Three. Three books. Mm -hmm. It's a trilogy, folks. The Hybrid Series Trilogy. Okay. So speaking of the future, then um, any timing, idea of timing, no spoilers, but uh, for book two titles you're willing to let out or are the PR people keeping a lid on that? <laughs> the PR people are keeping a lid on the title, but I can tell you it will be releasing next March. Okay. 
Okay, so just one year from now, yep. uh, March of 2024. Nice timing. Okay. Uh, March 2025 for book three, or is the jury still out on that? Uh, I think that's tentatively yes. Okay. Okay. All right. No spoilers at all, folks. You know, you'll learn the title when you learn it. Um, any other notes, like where folks can follow you, Candice, uh, can rank you highly on the Clout app uh, if you use <laughs> that terrible thing? <laughs> where can people attract you and uh, and hopefully uh, give you a good ranking? Yes, good ranking, please. Um, you can go to my website at CandiceCade.com. Candace is spelled C-A-N-D-A-C-E and Cade is spelled K-A-D-E. Um, you can sign up for my newsletter there. Um, you can also follow me on social media, Candace Cade author, and Enhanced is available anywhere books are sold in both hardback, ebook, as well as audio format. And also I wanted to add it's available on Spotify just recently. That's um, right. Yeah, I'm super excited. Getting to pull up Enhanced on Spotify was very surreal. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Candice. And one last word I'll say is Zaijian. <laughs> well, Stephen, I'm going to go back on something I said because of what I remembered at the beginning. I'm only a yellow belt in Kung Fu. And man, that was a long time ago. I would love to learn Kung Fu instantly like Keanu Reeves in the Matrix. So if there is a genetic editing pill or something out there I could take, where I could just become a Kung Fu black belt. That'd be amazing. I would take that in a minute. But let's go to our comm station on our episode 152 about church trauma. One of our heroes of the Lorehaven Guild, our exclusive Discord server, said, quote, yikes, do you guys have my whole life bugged? Wow, may have to listen to this one again. Great discussion. Thanks for sharing, end quote. Well, I'm so glad that was a helpful discussion. I know this is a tricky, sensitive topic. I'm glad that you want to listen again? And um, yeah, th- thanks so much for chiming in. And we also got a uh, comment from someone who wasn't as much a fan of our episode, uh, left a few comments for us on social media. Uh, in this case, uh, the uh, the comment we're going to read here uh, was actually left on uh, the comments p- page for episode 152, but it was really about episode 153. It was a chap called Keith, a very dedicated, uh, apparently follower of us on social media. Uh, he wasn't as much a fan on our episode about deconstructionism. And we do call that an ism. Uh, we call that a fantastical foe. We do view this as uh, altogether a threat uh, to storytelling. So that's why we were talking about it here with a nonfiction guest uh, named Michael Young, a.k.a. Wokal Distance. Keith was not a fan, though. Uh, he pointed out one reference we made, a very passing reference, actually, in the episode itself, uh, but seemed more than passing to him. Among other comments, he said, quote, I've read Jesus and John Wayne, and I believe Michael is entirely incorrect on his assessment about the book and deconstructionism in general. There are no professional deconstructors. There's no leftist agenda in Dr. Dumais' book, unless the message that power and influence corrupt and having super megachurch pastors be held up as leaders in evangelical circles was a terrible idea doesn't translate for you. I thought this was a podcast about storytellers, not a political punditry soapbox. I'm going to end the quote there. I definitely offered some responses, and Zach, you offered some responses now. Uh, We're eager to have that discussion, uh, but there was some stuff I think we said in the concession stand of that episode uh, that uh, apparently may not have gone heated. Yeah, so a couple comments I want to offer here. Look, there can be different opinions on Dumais' work, uh, Jesus and John Wayne, and that's fine, and we're, we're here to have a discussion about it. Yes, our previous guest was was not a fan of that book, specifically because of the methodology that was used by the book, which I think is a very different methodology than simple church discipline, holding leaders to account, 
Uh, and then even analyzing in your own faith how a fallen leader may have affected you. You know, I, I went to a church where the leader had a moral failure, and that definitely uh, sent me on a, a bit of a spiral as I had to figure out, okay, did everything he teach me, uh, what, was it wrong? Uh, do I have to go back and kind of unpack bad teaching now that could have led to his downfall, or was that still pretty solid? And so I, I think that is, you know, the Berean approach, right? Comparing what a teacher says to scripture. Uh, what we were tackling was the Foucault, Derrida, postmodern approach of deconstruction, which is honestly just a very cynical view that you can go and hear our entire conversation about that. But the reason that we talk about these topics on the podcast is, you know, we are not a political podcast. We don't talk about politicians. We don't talk about political parties or policies or laws or things like that. We talk about ideas because those ideas get put into stories and portrayed through characters, portrayed through the plot itself. As a reader, you can unknowingly swallow an entire worldview through the meaning of that story. And so I think it's important to unpack these ideas as they are getting inserted, maybe even unknowingly by authors, but often knowingly into fiction. But give us more of your thoughts. If if you want to chime in there more to you, our listener, you can always email us at podcast at lorehaven.com. We will actually uh, continue to explore fantastical foes that may get even more sensitive than the whole deconstructionism idea. I would caution uh, someone who maybe just feels uh, hurt by the church back home, which is my word for it. Uh, definitely go back and listen to 152 before you listen to 153, and certainly before you listen to the next episode and the episode after that. It is so important to understand that people will, I think, in their attempt to heal from very real, serious hurt, sometimes even trauma, uh, will be led into, I feel, overcorrection. And that can include deconstructing your faith, like going way too far with the doubts, uh, and then maybe even passing from one kind of what can only be described as hero worship to another. Now, we love stories here about heroes, but we do not worship human heroes. No one should, not the Apostle Paul himself, not even an angel from heaven. Scripture is very clear in warning against this kind of idolatry of a human servant at best of Jesus Christ who's doing their best for his church. Uh, it is true that there have been some megachurch leaders and others who have uh, gotten way too high up on the pedestal, and then they just can't survive up there. The oxygen's too thin. They are flawed. They take a great, great fall. And then someone can see that who's hurting in the congregation and say, well, I'm going to go find another hero. Uh, so you find an author, maybe even an author who's deconstructing or seems to be pointing out all the dirty laundry in the evangelical church. And you go, yep, that, that's, that's my person. That's my person right there. Please, please, please let me caution you. That person will also fail you. In fact, he or she is already failing. You just can't see it. We must be discerning about these folks. I think that's why it helps to understand our own imaginations. We tend to overload people with these uh, hero expectations that they cannot live up to. Jesus Christ alone can live up to those. Uh, we barely talked about some of the modern uh, authors, by the way, in that show. So to see this level of criticism about it, I think maybe a little bit revealing, I would just give a very gentle caution, like follow Christ alone, not a human author, uh, whether or not they seem to agree with you or give some message that seems to uh, heal that hurt. And that hurt is very real. Uh, over at Lorehaven, we are focusing on stories that also includes uh, the nonfiction influences and in stories. Uh, we've got reviews coming up. Uh, we just did a review of a book called uh, Exile. Uh, we do reviews every Friday. 
This Friday, we have a review of a middle grade fantasy called Please Return to the Lands of Luxury. You need to subscribe at lorehaven.com and we will send you all of those reviews as they come out. If you want them, you can get updates about the podcast as well or articles. I think we've got another article coming out this week. If I have the time to edit it while I'm preparing for that conference I mentioned, uh, should be a really great one. lorehaven.com slash subscribe. You can also then join the Lorehaven Guild, that exclusive community on our Discord server. Next on Fantastical Truth, we are back to the Fantastical Foe series through the month of March, uh, spilling over into April just a little bit. Our next Fantastical Foe doesn't look like a villain. Instead, she or he dresses up as whimsical kittens, cozy cottages, or easily identified good guys and bad guys. This foe will approach you with pleasant platitudes. He or she will come from a church or might even be, dare I say, a smiling, popular, spiritual fantasy author. Shining like an angel of light, she will give you beautiful lies, such as everyone is basically good, and you only need to fear the system of obvious villains like the powerful elite or doctrine or that bad church back home. Should we follow these messiahs from the deserts of social media? Beware this second fantastical foe, sentimentalism. Meanwhile, if you're going to beware fantastical foes, also beware folks who try to tamper with nature in ungodly ways and or establish your social credit with a computer instead of your human level reputation. Yes, we should uh, mind our reputations. A good name is good to have, the scripture says but I don't think you can reduce that to a number on a computer any more than you can reduce your human self granted by God uh, to a series of chemicals and a test tube. Let's make sure we are watching out for that weird science, but enjoying stories about the weird science in futuristic dystopias as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. 